Paul's primary aim in writing to the churches in Galatia was to reestablish the gospel that he had previously preached to them. And you might remember that shortly after Paul's departure from the region, other teachers emerged with a different message. These teachers distorted the gospel of Christ by making circumcision mandatory, by making certain aspects of the Mosaic law mandatory before a person could become a Christian. In response to the influence of these rival teachers, Paul begins this letter by defending his credentials and defending the message that he had preached to them. Here in chapter 2, Paul continues to make his defense, but this time he points to the fact that the other apostles affirmed the gospel that he had preached. Now, if you're tracking along in the text, you'll see Paul visited Jerusalem some time ago, but it was a very brief visit. The text tells us that he was only in Jerusalem for 15 days, and he only saw Peter and James, and that James being the Lord's brother. One of the things you'll notice in Galatians is in the gospel, it's usually ordered Peter, James, and John, or Peter, John, and James, but here it's James... Peter, John. And the reason is, is it's a different James. In Galatians, it's James who is the Lord's brother, who is the author of the biblical book, James. In the Gospels, it's James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Just a little sidebar, but want to make sure you've got the right James in mind. So here we have 14 years later, 14 years after Paul's conversion, he returns to Jerusalem for a more substantial visit for a longer sit-down with the other apostles. And this time he brings along Barnabas and Titus. And as you read that, you might think, well, this is a minor detail. We really don't need to know who's traveling with Paul. Why is that important? It's important because Barnabas was a Jewish Christian and Titus was a Greek. That meant he was an uncircumcised believer. So it's as if Paul comes to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus because he wants to see if these men will be equally regarded as members of the covenant. Or will Titus be regarded as less than because he is not of Jewish origin and he has not conformed to the Mosaic law. So in this letter, Paul wants the Christians in Galatia to know that the apostles received each of these men equally. That no distinction was made between Barnabas, the Jewish believer, and Titus, the Gentile believer. He also wants the Galatians to know that they didn't expect, they didn't compel, they didn't force Titus to be circumcised. And Paul shares this testimony as evidence that the false teachers that had infiltrated uh, the region of Galatia were giving a distorted gospel. Paul wants the Galatians to know that the gospel he preached to them was affirmed by all the other apostles. Now if you're following in your text, there's a phrase that's used that when it's translated into the English, it, it could be misunderstood. Paul says 
that of the other apostles, he says, they added nothing to me. And we might read that with 21st century minds and think, Paul's being a bit arrogant here. We might read that and think, Paul's saying, those other apostles, they added nothing to me. Those other apostles, I spent a lot of time with them and they did nothing for me. But to read the text with that tone is to miss what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is they added nothing to my gospel. I spent time with them, I shared my gospel message with them, and they added no further instruction. They added no additional requirement. They saw no deficiency in my gospel that needed to be augmented or changed. So Paul wants the Christians in Galatia to know that the message he preached was entirely accepted by the other apostles. And so Paul recounts in verse 9, When James and Peter and John perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. Now that may seem like a small statement at first. They extended the right hand of fellowship to me. And anyone who's ever become a member of this church, at least during my time, one of the things that happens in that ceremony is we extend the right hand of fellowship to you from the elders of this church. As though it's to say, we affirm your profession of faith in Christ. And as far as we can tell, we see your faith in Christ as genuine. And we give you the right hand of fellowship as a sign of acceptance. And it's based on that verse. It may seem like a little thing, the right hand of fellowship. John Piper calls this one of the most important moments in human history. We, we just read through that verse real quickly. And John Piper says, this is the, one of the most important moments in the history of mankind. Because if James, Peter, and John don't receive Paul, and if they don't accept his message then the forward momentum and the spread of Christianity in the first century grinds to a halt. If James, Peter, and John don't receive Paul, and if they don't ex accept his message, we lose half the New Testament. We lose half the New Testament if they don't accept Paul's message. Thankfully, our sovereign God is in control. And it is by God's design that Paul and Barnabas would be appointed to bring the gospel to the uncircumcised. And that James, Peter, and John would be commissioned to bring the gospel to the Jews. So they have this long gathering in Jerusalem. And before the meeting of these apostles adjourns, Paul says they asked us, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. They asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. I don't know about you, but the first time I read verse 10, I had to ask myself the question, how does this fit? How does this fit here? Because... Up to this point in Paul's letter, his focus has been entirely upon defending his credentials, defending the gospel message, explaining the gospel message. 
how does this exhortation to remember the poor, how does this fit? Could it be that our care and concern for the poor is intended to be a mirror of God's care and concern for us, which is explained in the Gospel. It appears that the apostles were under the conviction that Gospel proclamation ought to be accompanied by Gospel authentication. Or we might just say that the gospel must not only be spoken with words, but the gospel needs to be lived out and needs to be manifest in the lives of those who name Christ as Savior and Lord. Now before we take some time to unpack what it means to remember the poor and why it's important, I think we need to clarify what we mean by the word poor or the phrase the poor. And I use the phrase a bit reluctantly, but I use the phrase nevertheless because the Bible uses it. It's the terminology of scripture and so I use it. But I recognize that the phrase the poor has very negative connotations. And I'm certain that not many people would be comfortable identifying themselves with such a label. I read a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who once said, The violence of poverty and humiliation hurts as intensely as the violence of the club. The violence of poverty and humiliation hurts as intensely as the violence of the club. That's a profound statement, and it reminds me to be particularly sensitive when handling this subject. Now, there is a sense in which we can say that poverty is a relative term. Poverty is relative in the sense that someone who is considered poor in one context might be considered entirely well-off or wealthy in another context. Poor is often judged by who you're sitting next to. And so poor in one context is not necessarily poor in every context. Well, the Bible uses the term and the phrase often enough that we can identify or we have some standards to identify it. And the first standard in which we can identify poverty is what I would call the standard of vulnerability. The standard of vulnerability. That is to say, a person is so lacking in material resources that it threatens their safety. A person is so lacking in material resources that their well-being is threatened. We would say that such a person is living in a state of poverty. Now by that standard, the number of people that we might say are poor is very small. At least in the Western world, if a threat to your physical well-being is the standard, not many of us can say, I identify with this. But the Bible also connects poverty with an inability to make repayment on something. This is big because 
whole bunch of people that previously didn't fit the standard now all of a sudden do. The Bible connects poverty with an inability to make repayment on something. So in Scripture, what you have is poverty and indebtedness as being synonymous. And by this standard, many more among us could be regarded as being poor. Now as we place indebtedness alongside of poverty, we begin to see how being poor lines up so well next to the gospel message, which is what this letter is all about. Here's the connection as I see it. The gospel tells me that I'm spiritually impoverished. The Bible tells me that we are spiritually poor. The gospel tells me that I have a debt, and the debt is caused by my sin, and I'm unable to repay this debt on my own. The gospel then tells me that Jesus has made payment on my behalf. When I could not repay the debt I owed, the gospel says Jesus paid in full. In a spiritual sense, I was absolutely bankrupt. But now I have access to the king's riches. And it wasn't anything I did which prompted Jesus to do this for me. God's love and God's compassion is the vehicle that drives His grace and generosity. It's not something that we do. It's not something that we merit or that our performance compels God. No, God's love and compassion compels His grace and His generosity. So what does this mean for us? What's the so what after all that you've heard? As we think about how God has responded to our spiritual poverty, it should influence how we engage those who present themselves to us in need of certain material resources. If you've worshipped at St. Andrew's Kirk for any length of time, you're aware that we have this grocery distribution program. It's only been going for a year, uh, but we have helped literally hundreds of people through this food distribution. Now, we don't ask those who are accessing this program uh, a bunch of questions. We don't ask them to demonstrate that they're working hard to be self-sufficient or that they're working to remedy their situation. No, if they articulate a need to us, we help them. In a small and modest way, I admit, but we are happy to help by giving a bag of groceries. Now, by way of qualification, I could say a great deal about those who might want to take advantage of our generosity. But I'm going to limit my words on this because I don't want us to hold back, but I want us to be generous. But I've been here long enough... To know that there are people who understand that Christians want to be kind and generous, and they take advantage of that. 
And I've, I've encountered several persons in the last five years who've wanted to leverage our Christ-driven desire to help people for their own selfish gain. And all I'll, uh, I'll leave it at this. We're getting better at distinguishing between those who have genuine needs and those who are simply trying to hustle us. And if you've lived in this country for any length of time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Those who have genuine needs, who genuinely need help, and those who are simply trying to hustle us. Well, we need to get back to the text. Look at again at verse 10. James, Peter, and John wanted Paul to remember the poor. And that was something Paul says he was eager to do. He says, it was the very thing I was eager to do. So note Paul's disposition on this. It's not like helping the poor was some duty that Paul begrudged. It's not as if he was reluctant to help. There's no sense in which Paul sees helping the poor as as being sidetracked from his primary thing of preaching the gospel. Paul understood that the need for gospel proclamation needed to be accompanied by good deeds. And these good deeds made him eager to remember the poor. So to help us in this regard, I want to leave you this morning with three ways, three practical ways in which we can fulfill our mandate to remember the poor. And the first is remember the poor in prayer. Remember the poor in prayer. Though you may be in a position to give some resources, you belong to a God who owns all of this. Who has access to every every resource in the universe. As the psalmist says, the Lord has cattle on a thousand hills. Which is just a metaphor for saying, He's got a lot of stuff. And if you want to access that stuff for those who need it, ask for it. Pray for it. Adequate assistance may be beyond what you can provide. So go to the Lord in prayer on behalf of that person. Remember the poor in prayer. Secondly, remember the poor in your conversation. Remember the poor in your conversation. I'm sure you've noticed what I've noticed. That the most talked about people in this world are the wealthiest. Would anyone dispute that? That the most talked about people on this planet are the wealthiest. We live in a culture that is obsessed with the rich and the famous. From LeBron James to Kim Kardashian to Taylor Swift to Donald Trump. We may not even like these people, but we love to talk about them. We love to converse about what's going on in their life. I wonder what might change if as a society we spent the same amount of energy talking about the plight of the poor. The same amount of energy developing strategies To alleviate the burdens of the people. In the last few years, this church, and I'm I'm proud of you for this, 
I know pride's a bad thing, but there's, there's a sense in which I have to say I'm proud of you for this. In the last few years, this church has literally invested tens of thousands of dollars to help feed, clothe, and educate members of our community who are in need. And as you can imagine, these donations do not appear out of thin air. But the donations almost always begin with a conversation. As needs are verbalized, as people in need are identified, we naturally work towards finding a way to help. Dear friends, remember the poor in your conversation. And finally, and maybe most obviously, remember the poor with your resources. Remember the poor with your resources. And I realize that you can't do everything that is needed, but I bet you can do something. I bet each of you can do something. I know a day of errands on this island gives me many opportunities to do something small for another person. For instance, if you live east, and I don't know how many of you live east, maybe not even half of you, but if you live east and you're driving towards Montague at the end of your workday, you've got an opportunity to put a few dollars in a container being held by a gentleman who's committed to feeding homeless people. And for just a few dollars, you can help bring encouragement and a meal to someone in need. We all go to the food store, and in this country, every visit to the food store is an opportunity to give a few dollars to the person packing your groceries. Now, some might think, well, I only bought ten items, and they only put two bags. And Stop thinking about what service they render, and think for a moment as a Christian, what is their need? What would happen if we stopped giving according to what we think a person deserves? And we started to give according to what a person needs? As Christians, our minds should settle on the needs of people. And yet I fear that our mind normally goes to what the person deserves. I'm going to give this because that's all they deserve. That's the way of the world. The way of the world is to give what's deserved. But the way of the Christian is to give grace, to give what is needed. This is the way of the gospel. Because God doesn't render wages according to what we deserve. Because the wages of sin are death. We don't want wages from God. God does not render wages according to what we deserve. But He gives us grace. He gives us what we need. Why should we be generous? Why should we do beyond what's expected? Because God has been generous with us. God has been generous with you. And this should inspire our generosity to one another. Now as I say all of this, you might be hearing me as an individual, which is good. But I hope you're also hearing me as a congregation. Because while we may have opportunities to give a few dollars here and a few dollars there as individuals, I think we have a greater opportunity 
to be generous to others as a congregation. We can do more for the poor together than any of us can on our own. Did you know that less than a century ago, less than a century ago, it was a normal thing for a church to build a hospital? I don't want to get into all that was required to revamp Princess Margaret Hospital and all that it took to get that new wing open and to keep it running. But I want to highlight that in the last hundred years, it was a normal thing for a church to build a hospital. There was a time when governments depended on the church to care for the poor and to care for those who were most vulnerable, and we were good at it. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Outside of the government, no organization on earth has built more hospitals, built more shelters, built more orphanages, built more schools. It's not even a fair fight. No one even comes close to us. In the history of human civilization, no one has done more for those in need than the church. Sometimes I think I should stay away from Facebook because I saw a ridiculous post yesterday. It was an atheist group and they were posting that if the United States taxed all their churches, it would raise enough revenue to pay for all the food stamps. And thus, their theory goes, it would eliminate poverty in the U.S. Do you see how ridiculous that logic is? How many millions, how many billions of dollars does the local church, the average local church in America, contribute to the poor and needy? We're talking millions, probably billions of dollars each year. And so, of course, to tax them would be to steal from Peter to say, to to give to Paul, as we might say. The Christian church is the most generous organization on earth, and it's always been, and no one's ever come close to us. Some of you are worried, you're thinking, he's going to get us to build a hospital or something. No, let's start small. I don't have plans for us to build a hospital, but I do think we can do more. I think we as a local congregation can do more. I think if we partner with like-minded churches, collectively we can do more. I want us to dream about what we might be able to do if we were generous with those in need. And if we partnered with other generous congregations who wanted to help the most vulnerable in our nation. Remember the poor with your resources. Remember the poor with what's in your wallet, with what's in your bank account. And remember too that you were once poor. Oh no, Bryn, I was never poor. I was born from a wealth. No, you were once poor as I was. In debt because of your sin. We were all poor and needy by virtue of our rebellion against God. You had a debt that was massive. A debt that you could not repay. But thankfully, 
Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. If Christ has been generous with you, it ought to inspire our generosity to others. Proclaim the gospel, of course, but let us be careful to live out the gospel, to manifest Christ in our good deeds for the sake of His kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.